Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, on November 8th, 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yeah. Mark my words. Yeah. I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. What started off as unlikely, impossible, is now reality. It is my high honor and distinct privilege to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Today, we're dedicating our entire show to the year since Donald Trump was elected commander-in-chief. We're here with the mass politics profs to help sort through the triumphs and challenges of Trump's first year since winning the Oval Office. The mass politics profs are New England political science professors who offer analysis and commentary on their blog on WGBH.org. Joining me here at the WGBH studios at the Boston Public Library, Morris Moe Cunningham, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Moe. Hi, Carolyn. Glad to have you. Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hi, Gerald. Glad to be here. Shannon Jenkins, Chairperson and Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Thank you, Kelly. And Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Aaron. Hello, hello. All right, so you heard all of the, in, the exciting <laughs> commentary in that short clip. So I want to go around and just get each of you to give me your very very brief assessment of the first year. So I'll start with you, Mo. Well, it hasn't been a time of much accomplishment. Really, every single day brings some new evidence that, of the man's incompetence, of his unsuitability for office. Uh, you ran a brief period of him talking about his temperament there. He's completely unsuited by temperament and probably by every other measure for this job. I think that's what I take away from the first year. Shannon? 
So I would agree with Mo on sort of the legislative front, but uh, sort of bureaucratically in the executive branch, there have been quite a number of sort of maybe under the radar successes to <laughs> throw a pun in there, yeah. um, you know, with rollbacks of regulations in the EPA and in other agencies um, that I think sometimes people don't see but are, are going to be vastly important for the future of our country. Aaron. I would say twofold. One, just the, the real assault on so many political norms. Uh, and secondly, the division. Uh, it's not that things were rosy prior, but you know, Trump is opening up these questions that many of us thought were settled for the vast majority of Americans, and they're simply not. It feels like we're going backwards on some of those. And Gerald? Uh, I've been struck by a consistency uh, in the way he campaigned and the way he governs in terms of the political party that he's in. He is running his Republican presidency very, very much like he ran his Republican candidacy, which is to say he's not being cooperative at all with the leadership, but on the other hand is stoking an insurgency. So he's continuing to stoke uh, sort of a Republican insurgency, which has led to the legislative failure. But on the other hand, the folks that he's uh, sort of pandering to are actually the folks who are happy with those administrative accomplishments that Shannon referred to. Before we get into specifics, at the moment that he was elected, could you have predicted any of what you've seen in the last year or would have thought it would have gone this way? Gerald, you seem to say yes. Well, you know? I don't yeah, know if yeah. I, um, I mm -hmm. think maybe I, I assumed like most people that he would have to make some kind of alteration, that he would have to run uh, his presidency in some way that was different than the way he ran his campaign. His, his victory obviously was a surprise to everyone, including himself. And so I kind of expected him to have people around him who at that point would steer him in a more uh, conventional direction. So I was surprised that it was as consistent as it is. Uh, Aaron? You know, I, I didn't predict his victory, A. Eh? Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, listen carefully to what I say next. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but I, I really didn't think he would govern so far from the insurgency. The man likes to have numbers that look good, right? right? And he's been in the 30s the whole time. So I didn't think he was going to make, you know, overtures to Democrats. But I did think he was going to make more overtures to more centrist in his party and work to get those numbers up. I thought he would be bombastic right. and all those right. things. But just the sheer inability or unwillingness, the lack of desire to get out of the 30s and just hammer down on that base surprised me a bit, if only because of re-election. Mm. Mo? Well, again, like Aaron, I couldn't have predicted it. So uh, in some sense, I'm not surprised. I think, you know, this is mass politics props, not mass psychology props. But the man is, in my view, mentally and emotionally unstable, unbalanced. And those things don't improve with the pressures of the presidency. Shannon? So it's funny we're talking about predictions because I think the one thing that we've all learned is we're not as good at predicting as we thought we were. We all, I think all of us collectively probably told people, oh, don't worry, there's no Absolutely. chance that Donald Trump will win. And then when, we, when he won, we said, well, don't worry, he's going to moderate when he governs, and we're wrong with that. So I get really <laughs> nervous about making any sort of predictions to Aaron's point now, because we have been, so as a, as a discipline, it's caused us to sort of reevaluate many of our theories and where we went wrong on them. 
All right, well, let's start with his triumphs. I know a lot of people might listen to that and say, triumphs, were there? Yep, there are plenty, actually. And the biggest one, of course, is Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. So we can all agree, I see everybody's head nodding, that that, in fact, was quite a big accomplishment. He may later get some other opportunities to appoint other folks to the highest court, but certainly Neil Gorsuch has been a big victory for him, and already in his short, his short tenure has proven to be where I think he would have wanted him to be in terms of his the way that he presents himself and his perspective on the law. Would you all agree? I think it's a Mitch McConnell victory. Uh, you know, well, you're president and you're going to get the nominee, Mitch McConnell. Uh, I, I think this goes to, to something in the Republican Party, perhaps Shelter was referring to earlier, which is the willingness to bend norms and rules that precedes Donald Trump. Uh, McConnell was willing to essentially steal that nomination away from Obama. People didn't think he'd be successful when Trump was the nominee. Lo and behold, we were all wrong about the prediction. Trump did become president. Uh, he's nominated perhaps the most conservative uh, justice on the court now. Uh, in that sense, it's a win, but it's really McConnell's win. Don't forget, McConnell had to change the rules of the Senate to do this as well. He had mm -hmm. to change the filibuster rule. So no question, it's the biggest victory of Trump's, but it's really a McConnell victory. That's Mo Cunningham of UMass Boston. Shannon. I don't, I'm not, maybe I wouldn't entirely agree with Mo on that. I mean, I think Trump played a hand on that too. And if you look at sort of who he's nominating for the rest of the federal judiciary, right? He's nominating people that the ABA says right. are unqualified. Right. I mean, I think I read the other day, the last time that happened was in 2006. I don't know Mitch McConnell, but I suspect <laughs> that he would at least nominate qualified people. So. As much as I don't want to give you know Donald Trump kudos, I do think he he had some hand and played some role in picking Gorsuch and all of these other justices. Um, and and some of the credit, unfortunately, must go to Donald Trump on. And it's going to have a profound impact that lasts well beyond his presidency because these are, you know, appointments for life. Well, you led me right to where I was going, which is that a lot of people really do not understand the intense impact that President Trump has had on the federal courts. And he's very, very, very targeted on these federal courts. He's going to those courts where the judges make decisions mm -hmm. that would stop anything going to the Supreme Court. You know, they can sort of be the last word or as close to the last word as one can get. Pretty politically smart. Aaron. And it's a part of a long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've heard of packing the court before. This is packing the court in a way that's completely legal. And Republicans in general have been better at playing the long game and affecting the judiciary. And Donald Trump is following in that trend. He's getting people in that are very conservative. I actually don't think he's that ideological on all these, right, right. but it's a way to reward his base. And it's a win for him, and that's what he counts on the most. But it's going to be a continual win for him via what cases do and do not make it to the Supreme Court and the way case law will change. Um, I just wanted to note that he's nominated 50 candidates. These are lifetime appointments to the federal bench. One thing that should be noted, Gerald, and maybe you can speak to, the GOP has unanimously supported him in all of these, even though the ABA has said these, uh, some of these nominees are unqualified. We should say that the ABA has for long years made recommendations based on their knowledge, their intimate knowledge of what it takes to hold a judgeship and be a judge, and that's across political ideologies. They've been doing it for every president. A few months ago, President Trump said, we don't want your opinion anymore. <laughs> the ABA said, we're still going to give you our opinion. You don't have to take it, but we're going to let you know. Right. So it is very rare, Gerald, for yeah. them to say someone is unqualified. You Indeed. Uh, the the uh, consistency of support among Republicans is indicative of the fact that he is appeasing his partisans 
tops, uh, middle, and bottom in the appointment process, both judicially and executively. So in other words, when you're trying to measure his success, quote unquote, in conventional terms, you talk about his appointments. Right. And because those are folks who are uh, carrying out conservative policy. But when you are asking about triumphs, it's difficult because every time we try to analyze this guy with conventional standards, we get ourselves in trouble. And I think it's probably important for us to try to figure out what does he think uh, as really a victory or not. And the thing is, he thinks anything is a victory. Everything is a victory. Defeat is a victory. In other words, he has no standards that he measures victory with. And so for us to say what's a victory or not, we're using our standards. In his mind, I think victory is all about the crowd in front of him and their response to him. Because he certainly doesn't care about his national poll numbers, right? So he's obviously just taking in positive feedback that's coming from him where he sees it. Just be clear that the American Bar Association is what I mean by ABA, so people can follow me, and they're you know, top jurists in the country. I was trying to find a quote from one of the people that President Trump has nominated through his group. And uh, one guy whose name is Brent Talley said, um, uh, urge readers on his blog to join the National Rifle Association in calling gun control legislation rolled out in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in 2012, the greatest attack on our constitutional freedoms in our lifetime. There you have it. And the bottom line is, none of these people could get in if the GOP did not solidly back him. Right. So even though there may be people who agree with the ABA's assessment, mm -hmm. they are saying, hey, this is our guy, and we're just going to support him on this. We may disagree with him on other issues, but on this one, we're, we're standing tough. It is such a failure of the Republican Party as a political party that you haven't seen any pushback on things like that. Many of those senators know these are bad choices, but they're unwilling to break ranks. We've seen that over and over again. And it's a real question whether this is a party realignment of the Republican Party, that it goes in the Trump direction. But the only way that that doesn't happen is if a number of Republicans stand up to President Trump and say on certain things like this, there's plenty of conservative judges Right? It's not like you know, they're going to get some liberal in there. Like, pick a conservative judge that lawyers think is mm -hmm. talented, but he doesn't. And the Republican Party follows along here. Mark my words, 10, 15 years from now, these Republicans are going to look like cowards. I want to be clear that the ABA gave its highest rating to Neil Gorsuch. Mm -hmm. So this is not well, about that. I just want to be clear that everybody yeah, sure. understands it's not an ideological thing. Right. Um, he, he's conservative judges right. who are talented, who right. are qualified. Yes, they said right. he was well qualified. It wasn't even just he was small. Right. Here's one of the other judges. His name is Jeff Mateer, nominated to a federal judgeship in Texas. He, in a speech, referred to transgender children as proof of Satan's plan. Right. Anyway, well, the yes. reason why <laughs> yes. the, the yeah. mainstream Republicans or maybe Republicans we would uh, classify as conventional, the reason that they are standing, they are refusing to sort of push back is because they're very fearful of the base of their party. They're very right. fearful of the folks who've been waiting so long to be able to throw the bums out. They don't want to become one of the bums that gets thrown out in a primary to come. And they're, they're fearful in yep. two different directions. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me at the WGBH studios at the Boston Public Library are the Mass Politics Profs, Mo Cunningham of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston. And we're discussing the year since President Donald Trump was elected. So other triumphs for him, and you all can pick which one you may want to respond to or not, the stock market. Many people are very happy. They may be unhappy with things that the president 
government says, but the stock market's doing very well. The budget has just been passed. The Democrats have said it's a terrible piece of legislation, but they have at least gotten some of that through. And he stopped legislation effectively that others thought might be uh, helpful in the long run. And then he just agreed to release the JFK documents. We don't know if something is in there or not, but he thought it was a good idea, <laughs> even though he's had a few conspiracy theories about those documents. So just briefly on, on the other triumphs in this category, anybody? It seems like it's such a low bar when we say that you passed a budget, like for our political <laughs> system generally. When we teach American politics, we teach the budget is the one bill that must pass, <laughs> right? And like every time we think we're lowering the bar, right, further, it just keeps going down. Right? That's the one thing you have, that the government literally has to do. They have to pass, I mean, I suppose they can pass a continuing re resolution, but really, Spending money is what they, they must do at a minimum. And, and to but highlight that seems like such a low bar. You yeah. don't have to pass a certain kind of budget. You don't have to pass a budget that has, includes certain items. You can pass a budget which really harkens to where mm -hmm. he wants it to be, right? And represents, we don't quite know what his values are, but they right. represent right. the direction right. he right. wants to go in. So, Well, well your yeah. flexibility of yeah. values makes it a lot easier. Right. Oh, yeah. Flexibility okay. of values and a, a congressional majority. Mm -hmm. so, but it's, we teach all the time that presidents take credit for things they don't really deserve yeah. credit okay. for. So in that sense, this, <laughs> so is, this is actually <laughs> conventional. Yeah. This is conventional credit claiming, right? The JFK thing is interesting. Mm -hmm. To be honest, my sense is the best contribution of his presidency is now I'm certain there's nothing really at Area 51 because if there were, he would have released it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I think Obamacare is mm. one. I mean, everyone's like, why are you saying Obamacare? There were several um, grand seeming failures, but now he's chipping away at Obamacare via executive order. Right. And we just talked about appointments, the sheer number of non-appointments in places like the State Department. And so I think those are two areas he's been wildly successful in doing something he wanted to do all along, get rid of Obamacare. It's happening slowly. And then with those appointments, if you want to go more military route, mm. if you want to curtail big government, he's been very effective at just not nominating anyone. Yeah. Well, let's go to his challenges. Um, you've already mentioned some of those, and that's the legislative struggle, even though he's got a very solid, pretty solid GOP support. There's a little fraying around the edges, but, but even some of the people I just want to note, like a Jeff Flake and a um, Corker, they Bob, voted Bob with him. Bob Corker, they voted with him. So, I, okay. Well, yeah. vote, they're voting down the line conservative Republican. Yeah, but I'm so just So whenever saying, he's yeah. on that train, he gets their support. Okay. And there are conservatives. <laughs> right. All right, right, so the big, so the health care has been back and forth. It's still now in another iteration, actually a bipartisan iteration. But one of the things that they're very, very, the Republicans are very gung-ho about is the tax reform bill. Nobody knows quite the details. But let's just take a listen to Kevin Brady, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who, as he announces the Republican tax bill on Capitol Hill. With this bill, there's relief for real American okay. families. There's relief for American workers, and there's tax relief for our hardworking job creators of all sizes. And with this bill, we will grow our economy by delivering more jobs, fair taxes, and bigger paychecks to Americans of all walks of life. Well, those are the, the interesting thing here is that Trump, uh, because he is so clearly not honest, when you hear a politician doing conventional exaggerating like this is, right? This is very conventional lying, mm -hmm. right? I mean, everything he just said is either not true or incredibly debatable, but because of the, the, the Trump 
you know, way of dealing with honesty, it really seems much more honest. In other words, you know, we've really lowered the bar a great deal so that conventional political lying now looks honest. Well, one thing that's conventional is that um, Republicans have always wanted to reframe the uh, taxes right. or our tax process, I should say. And so they, you know, may, maybe this struggle happened around health care, but this is going forward, so it seems, Mo, you're frowning, but you don't think it's going forward. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, to go back to the successes for a minute, even the successes are limited uh, to things that he can do with his own pen, and that's limited. He's a right. weak president. He was a weak president on repeal and replace. Uh, Republicans in Congress, I, I think, realize they don't have a constant ally in the right. tax battle, and that makes him even weaker. So I think those are all problems for him. For the Republicans in Congress, it's Coke payoff time, and uh, they have been warned by the by the Cokes as recently as two weeks ago uh, mm, that they right. either come through with this bill or mm -hmm. uh, the right. support gets pulled. This is really important for the Republicans, but again, they can't depend on Trump to be consistent. Yeah, Don't. I think the, the devil's really in the details. It always is in tax reform, right? <laughs> Everyone's for it conceptually, but when, then when you roll out the details, policies that concentrate benefits and disperse costs are going to activate those people when they start to lose their benefits. And we're right. starting to see the National Association of Realtors is saying, well, we're not so sure. We don't yeah. know the details. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Right. But if they don't get what they want, they're you know, bringing out you know, with the big guns to oppose this. And so the Republican Party is really between a rock and a hard place because they need something when they go out in 2018. Right. But in order to do this without Democratic votes, they've got to find the way to pay for it. And when you start making people Amen. pay for things, they don't like it. <laughs> um, so they're really in a difficult jam right now. And to Mo's point, they don't have a president that they can rely on and right. to go out and rally the troops. So I don't know how they're going to get from point A to point B, except to just hold their nose and, and, and do it. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, uh, you know, I was thinking, too, that the, the advantage for Republicans, though, is Donald Trump doesn't care that much what's in there. Right. right? Mm -hmm. He wants a big victory, and the presidents want that. That's not that anomalistic. Right. And so what if something comes out between the House and Senate, which is a big if, to Shannon's point, but if it does, he'll sign it. It, yeah. The Republicans need a victory. He wants the victory. Tax policy, it, it, it's hard to legislate on for the reasons it activates individuals. All of a sudden, what's more boring than taxes on paper, right? But then when you start getting fewer benefits or you see social welfare programs cut or things like that, you know, this is really big, important legislation that uh, the longer it's out there, the more trouble for Donald Trump and Republicans because people are going to start paying attention. Well, the problem for the Republicans on every issue, and I think tax reform will be one of them, although if there's anything a Republican should be able to get done, it's tax reform. But, <laughs> but the pro when, when he does things off the cuff, like decide to sign an executive order removing Obamacare subsidies in a way that's going to really be disastrous, and his Republicans on Capitol are, oh my God, I can't believe what he did. Now they have to make cut deals with Democrats to fix it. In other right. words, he's a loose cannon. And he's and a loose Republican cannon governors. for the Republicans, mm -hmm. right? And right. so he's very unpredictable. And if you're a Republican who actually is, wants to get rid of Obamacare, you want to make sure that you get rid of it in a way that you won't get in trouble for, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not the way the president does things. So you really, it's almost like they have a, not so much an ally as a, as a liability in the White House. And yet, um, it, we, we just had, just this past week, the uh, tragedy in New York. The president seems to have a great ability to pick 
um, those issues, which she knows will resonate not just with his 30% base, but with many other people. They got and him so, elected. Right. So, so you have a situation where this is very fearful, mm -hmm. um, even though people will show great public strength. And it makes you wonder, question yourself if you thought it can't be all the people that are going to be banned by the, by the travel ban, if it ever comes to be. That, that's not real. Right. But... It gives you, gives you pause. Anyway, let's listen to President Donald Trump when he's asking Congress to cancel the diversity lottery program for green cards, and this is after the October 31st terrorist attack in New York City. I am today starting the process of terminating the diversity lottery program. I'm going to ask Congress to immediately initiate work to get rid of this program. Diversity and diversity lottery. Diversity lottery sounds nice. It's not nice. It's not good. And we'll be asking Congress to start working on it immediately. There are bills already about ending chain migration. And uh, we have a lot of good bills in there. We're being stopped by Democrats because they're obstructionists. Now, as I understand, um, he had cited Chuck Schumer, um, the head of the, the Democratic minority, as somebody specifically who had supported this lottery. But um, in fact, Chuck Schumer, just for the record, initially did years ago and then came back and said, if we're going to reform immigration, this is something we should do. So he is not in favor of this. It's a small thing, but it's right in the moment, mm -hmm. Mo, of people feeling very uncertain. Well, that's him. He, he, he always is in the moment. It sounds good. And I wouldn't blame him if he hadn't understood before what the diversity lottery program right. was. No, no person can understand everything. But it's typical of him. He, to this day, I'm sure he doesn't understand what the diversity lottery program was right. or how it functions right. or other aspects of immigration. Gerald is right. He goes for the, the win. Uh, he uh, does a wonderful soundbite. Uh, but he doesn't really understand policy. That was his problem with repeal and replace. Republicans would say he doesn't even understand what's in the bill. He doesn't understand what's here, but he, he understands people will react to it, and that's the way he operates. Well, he understands his base. The word diversity is a trigger. Right. Yeah. Diversity and so immigration. Exactly. Get me a policy with diversity on it to cancel right now. Well, and that's just it. He is not an ineffective. We've been downed on Trump, obviously, here. He is, the man is not an ineffective politician. He's quite masterful in terms of playing on those anxieties. You know, this week I've been teaching on symbolic politics in my classes and the way those those anxieties are real, those fears are real, and they need some place to go. Well, where do I go? Where do I, I'm against this diversity inclusion. And listen, the man won the presidency, so a lot of people who are negative on him now voted for him. So, you know, just because he's been challenging to watch <laughs> for many, he's willing to go places other politicians aren't, and he gets very positive responses when he does so. Yeah, and I, and I think sometimes you wonder, you, you know, Mo will say, well, he's mentally unstable, and you have to say, is he crazy, or is he crazy like a fox, mm -hmm. right? Um, his, his base is still solidly with him. They are mobilized. Steve Bannon, I think, is now more far effective outside of the White House than he ever right. was, um, threatening keeping the Republican Party in fear of right. a Bannon challenge in the primary. Um, and so some days yeah. I, you think, Right, he's amazingly effective at finding these moments mm -hmm. and ways to send signals to his base that keep them happy because they don't really ultimately care about the fact that he doesn't understand mm -hmm. policy. And they don't care they, about the Republican Party. Right. They, they right. want to blow it up, so right. does he. Well, right. the, the biggest power mm -hmm. brokers in the Republican Party today are conservative media personalities, not mm -hmm. conservative politicians. Unelected. 
correct. Right. Yes, just right. want to be clear They're about the that. opinion yes. leaders. Yes. They're yeah. the opinion right. drivers. And so when you're, if you're a conventional Republican who actually is, wants to be reelected and has sort of a, a policy agenda, you always have to avoid being, you know, talked badly about on Fox News. Mm -hmm. You, they are really the ones who drive that 30 percent, and that 30 percent is enough. You can play them off against the middle. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here at the WGBH studios in the Boston Public Library with Gerald Duquette. You just heard him, Shannon Jenkins, and Aaron O'Brien, and Mo Cunningham. And we're discussing the triumphs and challenges Donald Trump has faced since his election one year ago. So a lot of people have called him kind of the Teflon guy. You guys have offered <laughs> cool. up some, some critical uh, commentary about his performance and his temperament. But yet, lots of stuff comes at him, but it just goes away. And one of the big things that many people thought would have some impact are possibility of collusion, someone in his staff colluding with Russia. So as we know, some of this information has just come out and with some arrests by Robert Mueller, who is the special counsel. Let's listen to White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders as she talks about the federal charges that were filed against Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and George Papadopoulos. Today's announcement has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the president's campaign or campaign activity. Uh, the real collusion scandal, as we've said several times before, has everything to do with the Clinton campaign, Fusion GPS, and Russia. There's clear evidence of the Clinton campaign colluding with Russian intelligence to spread disinformation and smear the president to influence the election. We've been saying from day one there's been no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion, and nothing in the indictment today changes that at all. It was nefarious of Hillary Clinton to conspire with the Russians to undermine her own campaign. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, listening to Sarah Huckabee is, is really, um, it's, it's unfair to us not to provide us shot glasses while we have to listen to that. <laughs> it's really Alice in Wonderland. It's, well, the, the, you got to understand. But the response, that pe a lot of people have responded saying, this is nothing. Well, I just want to be clear about you gotta that. you got to understand. Yeah. The, the reason why the president doesn't care that he's only got 30% approval rating mm -hmm. in general is because this goes to the issue of media fragmentation. In other words, the people that he's talking to, his mm -hmm. base, they do not believe the mainstream media. <laughs> so he can actually pretend reality is their reality. It makes no sense for him to try to go after national poll numbers. He just has to make sure the people who have been with him stay with him. And they're watching Fox. They're listening to Rush. And they're saying the same fantasy stuff. So he's consistently mobilizing his public base and that the rest of the country thinks of it as Alice in Wonderland. But he got this far this, with just that base and he assumes he'll continue to. He can't govern this way. Though. Right. This, is, this, is, but, this is the thing. But he, he is, is governing and, this and, way. And, and he'll be with us. <laughs> right. yeah, he's not really governing, though. He, he hasn't really, you know, I mean, I don't disagree with my, my colleagues, say, on executive orders or the judges, but if you measure a president's success, and you can measure not just FTR's 100 days, but Obama's early accomplishments, George W. Bush's early accomplishments, this is not it. This is point-to-point right. point point survival and distraction. Right. It's not governing. But he thinks that's victory. Yes, yeah. In his mind, he's right, winning. Right. But, it, but to your point, Gerald, it, his supporters also think it's victory. Right. right? Mm -hmm. I was laughing because Gerald shared something on Facebook, and he's like, this is so patently unfalse. And right underneath, my conservative friend shared it, too, and said, this is the most true thing I have ever seen. <laughs> right? And so there is no penetration. They right. only hear that side, right. and they hear Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Fox News and Trump, and that is their universe of facts. So it, he could go down and murder someone on, a, was yeah. it Fifth <laughs> Avenue? Fifth right? Avenue. Right? And they would believe that it, would, it was self-defense. 
sense. So. But I do think there's mm. something different here. Like th we talked at the beginning about an assault on norms. Mm. Uh, it's Fox News, MSNBC, outrage media that existed pre-Trump. But it is something different in the you know from from the pulpit there or not pulpit but the podium. <laughs> the podium. The That's the a different pulpit. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in that White House to have a true denial. We've always framed facts in ways that are favorable to your candidate. Right. We've framed facts that, that, that make your person, your party look better. To get up and repeatedly say, you know, I'm holding up a blue slide and it's purple, and everyone goes along and it's purple. To have that happen repeatedly, I think is going to have lasting implications for the office and for the country. You know, I don't know who's next, but to get up there and have that happen over and over again and not have a media, a consistent media that is checking, a consistent citizenry that's checking, it's hugely problematic. So that's Aaron O'Brien from UMass Boston. So I want you all to, so we've put a lot of stuff on the table that are his challenges, but nothing, and Mo, and Mo has just been blunt to say he's not governing. He's sort of just hanging in there day to day. Right. Uh, you guys are the people that take the long view, that use policies and, um, and history to inform us about what this means in some way, even if you haven't seen it before. So how do we assess this? Well, that's, oh, I think... As a discipline, I think it's fair to say that political scientists as a discipline are concerned about the future of our democracy, mm -hmm. to Aaron's point. Um, in a long view, um, it's like a game of Jenga, right? And we started pulling <laughs> yeah. out a few pieces, and now we're pulling them out fast and furious. Um, and the first few pieces are like, yeah, it's no big deal, right? right? It's not going to hurt. It's still struck. But we're, 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 I'm, we're worried, I think, collectively, mm -hmm. those of us who study it, that we're getting to the point where the, where the tower tumbles. Yeah. Um, and it that's, can't be put back together. That's very concerning, I would say, to almost universally as a, as a discipline. There's a big concern about the long-term stability of our democracy yep. if we continue on this path. One of the ways that I have sort of tried to cope with this radically different situation in teaching is to try to use categories that we've always used when we're trying to evaluate a presidency. How is he performing certain roles? Party leader, uh, public mobilizer, administrative uh, president, and just trying to just sort of say, okay, well, let's pick one, a party leader. Well, clearly, we can look at how he's doing this and say he's actually trying to lead outside into the... In other words, we can actually sort of make his presidency fit old categories in a sense, and that that's the best we can do. In other words, it's very hard to disguise the fact that the president is not qualified, right? That the president is not particularly bright, that the president is off the reservation, that he's a, a loose cannon. That's all objectively clear, but yet we're still in the business of, of teaching folks about how politics works. And so in my case, I'm just doing my best to try to compare conventional presidents doing conventional roles with, as best I can see, how he's accomplishing the same job or not accomplishing it. That's Gerald Ducat of Central Connecticut State University. I, Shannon, I just want to go back to you, Shannon, from UMass Dartmouth, Shannon Jenkins from UMass Dartmouth. Uh, you almost uh, quoted from one of the best-selling books now, tragically called On Tyranny, by um, Professor Timothy Snyder, who is not a political scientist. He teaches history. And his line that, I, that sticks in my head from having read this very short book is, history does not repeat, but it does instruct. And so what he has laid out in his 20 lessons from history 
are much of what you said about how democracies start to unravel. But that seems amorphous for a lot of people. Right. In, you know, when you start talking in those terms, they think you're like doing the woo-woo thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. And I also think it's problematic, too, because right, we have become the enemy. Mm. Right? We are the liberal academics. Right? And so what we say is just, you know, we're chicken little running around, right? Um, but, you know, there, we, we literally have spent our lives, our adult right. lives studying right. this. And I don't necessarily think it's a partisan thing. I know I a lot of conservative academics who are also scared sure. about the erosion of norms. Because mm -hmm. one of the things we teach is how fundamental norms are, right? It's not the fact that we have a constitution that matters. It's the fact that we believe right. the constitution matters right. it what is what makes it important. And to the extent that we stop to care about those norms, the, the foundation crumbles away. And so I, I want to reiterate, it's not a liberal thing. Right. Right? right. And to be fair, I'm sure the Democrats have pulled some of those Jenga pieces out, right. you know, maybe early on too. It's not necessarily one side or the other. The Republicans, I think, are pulling fast and furious now, but we all share a little blame and we need to think about where we go moving forward, you know, to not end this with a great experiment, right? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's, uh, there's a couple of issues that have, that have become front page news and water cooler buzz. The NFL kneeling controversy, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm raising that. And then most recently, the sort of back and forth between President Trump and Maisha Johnson, who is a gold star widow. Her husband was killed, one of the four killed in uh, Niger. So I just wanna listen to uh, both uh, Maisha Johnson and uh, President Donald Trump as they sort of talk about where they were, how they saw themselves in this, in this particular controversy. I had a very nice conversation with the woman with the wife who is sounded like a lovely woman did not say what the congresswoman said and most people aren't too surprised to hear that i heard him stumbling on trying to remember my husband's name and that were hurting me the most because if my husband is out here fighting for our country and he risks his life for our country why can't you remember his name so, I mean, I think that um, both the NFL challenge, which President Trump involved himself in, and, and this back and forth that he had with Maisha Johnson brought a lot of people to the table who don't normally sit around discussing constitutional <laughs> issues sure. and freedoms and, and, and what does it mean when we say we're free to protest or, right. or have respect for you know, the military, uh -huh. all of that. And I wonder how you feel that that what, what layer does that play in, uh, in our conversation? Uh, to me, it speaks to the way in which he's opening up seemingly settled and seemingly sacred things. Like a widow, gold star families, and he's regularly going after individuals of color. It's not, I, you know, I could even give him, I think it would be incredibly hard to make that, to make that phone call. If it didn't come on the heels of the wall, of going after Kaepernick, of Charlottesville, then I could maybe see, all right, that, that's a difficult phone call to make. But you know what? The man has a history of racial animus. It's undeniable. It needs to be named. And he's, it's not that America was healed prior, <laughs> hardly, but it, he is not just ripping a scab off. He is making it worse. And he's making it worse from the very top. He's emboldening people who, at least in the past, knew to be quiet about it. But his audience is very pleased with the whole. Well, sure, but it doesn't matter. Like in terms of these norms, right. um, it, you know, that, that's great. You're going to your base, whatever. But his base is getting bigger on issues 
of race and demography right. indifference. I, and Absolutely. I will say that the base is discussing these issues mm -hmm. in some of these terms, right. whether even if they agree with him, there, there's a discussion <laughs> well, but going dis on. Discussing yeah. the yeah. NFL protest as a free speech issue is itself a distraction. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It should yeah. it should be a discussion about police brutality. Yeah. Not for speech. Well, I've said that many times, but that's right. mm -hmm. not, you know. And, but. You know, there was there was a I think it was a Pew poll that came out recently that showed a, a majority of white Americans believe that white pe Americans are discriminated yeah. against. Yeah, right, right. Right. It's this emboldening of right the, identity mm -hmm. politics. Right. It's right. Just a yes. White identity right. politics. Exactly. But you should you should make clear that in that study they could not recall any incidents of discrimination. <laughs> right. Correct. Right. They just right. Said, it, but we exactly. believe that it's happening. I know right. it. And yeah. and and yeah. so. I was really taken aback by that, mm -hmm. that, right. that a majority of Americans yeah. expressed, white Americans, yeah. expressed that view. And it, it is just bringing that out into and the how open. Quickly, right. How quickly it's occurred. You know, we've right. had it, you know, it, it generously since the civil rights era, at least a public discourse that says you don't do certain things. People are equal, right? And in one year, I mean, listen, part of the reason a lot of people hated Obama was because he's African-American, undeniable. But in one year to see such a shift on these things goes to show these norms can be broken down so quickly. They're not as strong as we think. Okay, I'm going to put a pause there. That's a good place to put a pause while we take a break. When we return, more of the first anniversary of Donald Trump's election. If all this happened in year one, what do the mass politics profs think will happen in year two? There's plenty more to discuss, so stay tuned. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And this week, we're dedicating our whole show to the anniversary of President Donald Trump's election. Here to discuss Trump's presidency so far are four of the mass politics profs, a group of political science professors who share their analysis and commentary on their blog on WGBH.org. We're here at the WGBH studios, and joining me at the Boston Public Library are Mo Cunningham of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut. Connecticut State, Shannon Jenkins of the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and Aaron O'Brien of the University of Massachusetts Boston. Well, let's jump back into our conversation. A number of you have mentioned media, of which I'm very much a part, and President's uh, favorite terminology for the media that uh -huh. he doesn't like, which is fake. Let's just listen to uh, one of his <laughs> many comments about the fake media that reported he wanted to increase the nuclear arsenal tenfold. No, I never discussed increasing it. I wanted it in perfect shape. That was just fake news by NBC, uh, which gives a lot of fake news lately. It's frankly disgusting the way the press is able to write whatever they want to write, <laughs> and people should look into it. <laughs> now, out of that, uh, out of that statement, um, he then kind of threatened to pull. Uh, television stations licenses didn't quite understand that was not within his purview to do but it gave a sense of how obviously he feels about this he just wants it to stop mo the press is the enemy of the american people is another statement of his this goes to his authoritarianism mm -hmm. uh it's deeply worrying um he you know it, it, it's terrifying in a lot of ways uh, the attorney general has has, has, has indicated uh that uh, uh reporters will be investigated and I will say the press is, uh, as an American institution, largely, we, we focus somewhat on the negative often. Press, the Washington Post, the New York Times, other, 
outlets have been heroic, I think, uh, in their reporting this year. Listen, every president dislikes the press. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, has another one ever called the press the enemy of the American people? No. Nadering so. napalms, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, this is really, uh, it goes to his extraordinary level of disdain for American institutions. And I, I want to add that um, even in those presidents that have really, really disdained, if that's the word that you use, the press, and said, I prefer not to ever have any, have said it is really, really important, right. followed on the heels mm -hmm. of that statement, right. that we have a free press. So I just want to make sure that, The folks you know, that he's, he's talking to, this is... This is how they think. You know, the average person doesn't really understand FCC licensing. Mm -hmm. So he's basically just reflecting the attitude of people that he wants to, you know, be connected with. I agree that he doesn't really know what he's talking about. But even if he did know and was doing this for effect, it would be to seem authentic. In other words, everybody understands that politicians say gaffes, which is the truth they, they let slip out, and he's basically not doing that in one sense. In another sense, you just said, well, every president says they don't like the press, but then they make the boilerplate disclaimer, but we need a free press. So his constituency loves that he doesn't give them the boilerplate, mm -hmm. loves that he doesn't qualify his ridiculous claims because that's how all of us really act in our daily lives. We don't stop and qualify everything we do, right? No, I, yeah, some people do. Uh, <laughs> but Shannon, but, but, but it also, to back to Aaron's point, it reflects how far and how quickly our norms have eroded. Right? If you would have asked any of us you know, a year and a half ago, can you imagine? It's in the First Amendment, right? It was, it was the first thing we changed about our Constitution. It's so fundamentally important. And as political scientists, when we teach about democracy, right, you know, the, the media is the fourth branch. It is fundamental to a fair and functioning democracy. And to have a president say, I'm going to take their licenses away, silence, censor them, just when you think it can't go any farther, I, I was just really taking, and then we're on to the next issue and the next issue. And that one to me was just really particularly galling because it's such a fundamental part of any democracy to have a free press. And it softens a policy space for him moving forward, right? As you discredit, you discredit, you discredit, mm -hmm. then it, it gives him more leeway to do other things. It gives him more leeway to be the sole proprietor by which people take in their information. Trump TV. Yeah. Well, actually, he's a mm -hmm. media person, too. So let's listen to a clip from <laughs> Real News Update, once deemed Trump TV. This is a YouTube channel in which Lara Trump, wife of Donald Trump's son, Eric, discusses what's happening in the White House to combat fake news. Hey, everybody. I'm Lara Trump. Thanks so much for joining us to hear all about the President's Week. This week marked Ronald Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 1986 and the start of one of the longest economic booms in American history. Unfortunately, since that time, our government officials have let us down and we have reverted to becoming one of the highest tax nations in the developed world. So it's not that he doesn't like all media. <laughs> when he has his own media, right. he yeah. likes it. Yeah. State-controlled media is a wonderful yeah. thing. So he's incredibly media savvy. Right. I mean, he's good, incredibly yeah. good at it. And yeah. there's a lot of jealousy on the I left guess. and the right, right that he's been able to do this so effectively and, to Shannon's point, so, so quickly. All right, so I want to um, talk about some of these uh, nascent efforts, conversations about impeaching. 
And some people, you know, moving toward, really building a, a movement toward impeaching. I'm on the record for having said, I don't think that's going to happen. And furthermore, I think that he has eight years, not four. Some people really get upset with me when I say that, but that's, that's my prediction. For some of the reasons we've discussed before, because you have to have somebody to say we want to impeach who are actually people who are elected. Now, there have been a couple of, of ways, but here's one that I thought was very interesting. This guy has been offering up ads trying to build a movement. This is a clip from an ad from the Need to Impeach campaign funded by Tom Steyer, who's founded of Next Gen America and a political mega donor to liberal causes and democratic campaigns. Trump tweeted on October the 27th that Steyer is wacky and totally unhinged uh -huh. in response to the ad, but here's the ad for everybody to hear it. He's brought us to the brink of nuclear war, obstructed justice at the FBI, and in direct violation of the Constitution. He's taken money from foreign governments and threatened to shut down news organizations that report the truth. If that isn't a case for impeaching and removing a dangerous president, then what has our government become? Join us and tell your member of Congress that they have a moral responsibility to stop doing what's political and start doing what's right. Our country depends on it. Um, he claims to have gotten uh, 1.1 million signatures in the first week. I, uh, I have, have you to, seen that ad before? I have, I have to laugh when he tells members of Congress to stop being political, right? <laughs> yeah. does, does he not understand what literally their job is? <laughs> That's Shannon Jenkins correcting Tom Steyer. Okay, right. I guess not. He doesn't understand it. <laughs> yeah. I should mention that two other Democratic folks have made noises about this. Representative Brad Sherman drafted and circulated articles of impeachment against Trump this past summer. And also Representative Al Green from the Lone Star State said he was putting aside a movement that he was going to, uh, or a resolution he was going to put forward because it was right after um, Las Vegas, after the incident in Las Vegas. It, but he's very much wanting to do it. And it all turns on what the Republican Party does. And, you know, to, we've said it earlier, there's just nothing about the Republican Party right now that suggests they're going to go along with impeachment. And I, I heard this recently, that when Nixon was uh, reelected, he won, I think it was 48 or 49 of the states, right? Mm -hmm. We are so divided as a polity in terms of for the presidential election that uh, members are coming from states that it would have to seemingly change their mind. Donald Trump, no, it, it's those red states are going to stay red for him. And so I think that's another variable to trying to understand impeachment on top of party polarization, on top of a failure of a Republican party to hold up some of these norms. This I think also speaks to one of the problems of the parties right now which is we are, we're not only playing Jenga, we're playing follow the billionaire, mm -hmm. because this is not coming from mm -hmm. uh, within the Democratic Party. It That's is coming right. from a billionaire donor mm -hmm. who is, uh, this is a privatization of politics. Right. Yeah. I think Democrats, wise Democratic politicians, they do exist, and they exist on the Republican side. Wise Democratic politicians are saying health care, taxes, there are a lot of things we can, we can forge a winning message on for 2018, but we don't think impeachment is it. But he's, he's, right. he's essentially moving the party in his direction, or attempting to, and that uh, has happened on both parties, and uh, it weakens parties. It weakens parties that are already weak, and uh, I think it's a bad thing. That's my guest, Mo Cunningham. He is a member of the Mass Politics Profs, who are here with me at the Boston Public Library in our studio, the WGBH studio. Also with me, Gerald Duquette, Shannon Jenkins, and Aaron O'Brien. We're talking about the year since Donald Trump was elected president. So I'd like each of you to pick 
an area, I know you said you can't predict, but based on what you've seen in the last year and what you think is going to either turn into something bigger than it is now or it'll be the other shoe that drops if there's any shoe dropping. I'll say, I'll go first with bad predictions. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot of talk, a lot of overconfidence, I think, on the left that the Democratic Party is going to pick up a lot of seats at midterms. I don't see it happening. And it, once that happens, it further emboldens, tr- not Trump per se, but the Trump administration's policy proposals. So, you know, anybody who's waiting saying one more year and then, you know, the House will flip, not the House, but the Senate will flip, I don't think it's going to be happening. The sort of histo- historically, the, do- the, the dominant party, the White House party loses seats. I don't think it's going to happen this time. That's Aaron O'Brien from UMass Boston. Gerald? Uh, well, I, I think it's probably not too dangerous to predict that as we get closer to the 2018 midterms, that the Republicans will find a way to pass something that at least appears significant. It may well be tax reform, but it, the point is, I think that the uh, closer we get to the 2018 elections, the more conventional the incentives for intra-party peacekeeping will become. Is that a way of saying there will be some bipartisanship? No. Oh, okay. That's a way of saying the Republicans will stop fighting a little bit with each other just to get something they can turn around and say, we did this, re-elect us. Okay. All right. Mo? I think the thing to look at is the the civil war in both parties, the the Bannon slash Mercer uh, Coke battle uh, in the Republican Party that has already kind of forced out Jeff Flake in Arizona. And on the Democratic side, there's a piece out in Politico from Donna Brazile who was acting chair of the DNC uh, last year, really slamming the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign. And that war continues to go on in the Democratic Party. At a moment when they could possibly exploit midterm elections, they're still fighting with themselves. Shannon. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats are still, they're in the woods. They haven't wandered out yet. And mm-hmm. it's we're just getting too close to the run-up to really uh, get their stuff together. Um, I will also say that I agree that I think absent a smoking gun from the Mueller investigation, impeachment will not happen. Now, maybe I'm saying that because I'm so bad at predictions <laughs> that I want to be wrong. I don't know. But um, there's just not the will in the Republican Party. They are afraid, right? It is not a coincidence that the only people who have spoken out in the party um, against him, do not hold elected office, or are not running for office again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't see impeachment right. really actually happening. Right. I, I don't know that I'd go to eight years. I think maybe, hopefully, in, in you know that period, the Democrats will be able to get their act together. Maybe not by 2018, but particularly if there's a, disappointments again, I think mm-hmm. it, they're going to really be some impetus to figure it out. I would just add one minor point with regard to the uh, civil war on the Democratic side. One of the problems for the Democrats getting their act together is the massive distractions from what we all agree are under the radar Mm. policy accomplishments. When I talked particularly to folks who were very vigorous Bernie supporters, and I start to sort of talk about, well, do you know we've sold off public lands? Do you know we've done this? This is shocking. And so as long as the conversation is about Trump, it's harder to get Democrats to get together because it's harder for them to see just how badly the progressive policies are being impacted. I should note, while you're saying that, uh, Gerald Duquette of uh, Central Connecticut uh, State University, that Michael Capuano, who's a congressperson here in Massachusetts, has a space on his site in which he goes behind the curtain to alert people who want to be updated on all of the changes legislatively that we are not talking about. And administratively. And administratively, because there's not space out here in in the media world to discuss it And to be fair to citizens, Mm. it's really hard to keep up with all Mm, this. It's really hard to keep up with all of this during normal times. Heck, I get paid to do it, and Mm. it's still... 
And so with all the noise of Trump and this, the job of the citizen has become incredibly hard or even more difficult heavy in the last heavy, year. Heavy Which left. is what makes me wonder if he's not crazy like a fox, right? Mm. right? Mm. That, that all this is a distraction for everything that, that mm -hmm. people are not seeing, that are significant rollbacks and protections for disabled students, yeah. uh, the rights of transgender students, the rights of women with respect to sexual assault in the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. We haven't even talked about that today, right. um, but there have been massive changes to mm -hmm. our educational system that people are unaware of and that we didn't talk about because we're talking about all these other things yeah. that are a distraction. Right. Sometimes I think, is it part of a broader strategy, right? Or do, do they know this is the way to get there? I, I don't know. I don't think so, but sometimes mm -hmm. I wonder. And Lisa Wade had a piece, as she's a sociologist, and it, there was a, one quick throwaway line that sort of stopped me in my tracks and made me think, oh, maybe. To uh, the point on impeachment, you know, she was negative that, that it's not going to happen. And she made the point that there's nothing to suggest that if he was impeached, that Donald Trump would hand over power. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, and then she goes on to say it for oh. four, four years, eight years. What makes you think if he loses in three years that he will leave and leave peacefully, especially when he's got underneath him you know, a party apparatus and a media apparatus that would challenge? Um, and so it, it took my breath away, but you know, a, a lot of things I didn't think were possible have become a, a lot more probable. Yeah. Any one thing that you think could change in what we have discussed today, the trajectory or how all of this is viewed? Well, I mean, I, I, that's what I was trying to get at when, I, when the most passionate progressives who are now trying to fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, if there was a way to focus that intramural dispute, not on Trump, no Trump, but on Republican policy change mm -hmm. or not. In other words, the stakes are a lot higher than just Trumpism. Mm -hmm. the, the most progressive people are very policy oriented. And when they understand that the defeat of Hillary Clinton has put us back on the policies they care about many, many years, they might become more willing to become accommodating to more moderate forces in the Democratic Party. I have time for one last benediction. I think the thing that could change, we haven't talked a lot about it, is the Mueller investigation. Mm. Um, he's, what you do in these investigations, and he's already done it with Papadopoulos, probably, <laughs> tough name, uh, probably Kelly, uh, he's, uh, he's flipping these people. He, he's unafraid to go after Trump's business interests. He's unafraid to go after the family. And he's heavily under attack right now uh, by Republicans because of this. I think the Mueller investigation uh, could still lead to, to larger indictments. All right, same time next year. All right. Oh, please. <laughs> if we're not all in jail. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. Mass Politics Profs. Mo Cunningham is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Gerald Duquette is Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Shannon Jenkins is Chairperson and Professor of Political Science at University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And Aaron O'Brien is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Together, they are four of the Mass Politics Profs. You can find their blog at blogs.wgbh.org slash massapoliticsprofs. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us 
us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Thank you to the Boston Public Library and our WGBH staff at our satellite studio here and in Brighton, including Linda Pollock, Emmerich Feldmar, Miles Smith, and Molly Boygon. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.